Thank you, Ryan. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you here. We appreciate those of you who are visiting with us today. Uh, it's good to see some here who have been ill and have been away or had surgery and are back, and we're very thankful for that. Uh, that God has answered our prayers for all and that we can all be here together to worship today. Several weeks ago, I heard an interview on the radio with uh, Dr. Bruce Grayson of the uh, University of Virginia Medical Faculty. And uh, Dr. Grayson had, in his medical practice over the years, encountered a lot of people who had what were described as out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences, and who came, uh, came to later on and told him things that they couldn't possibly have known, that at least in, not in any way that he could explain. And so he collected all these stories over about 30 years and uh, investigated them and compared them and uh, was quite fascinated with them and published a book called After, A Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond. So I was curious about that book and I got it and, uh, and read most of it. And uh, in the course of that book, he relates a lot of the uh, accounts of his patients who had, and other people's patients who had related near-death experiences to him. And you've heard some of these kinds of things before. People saw bright lights or uh, felt warmth or uh, thought they had visions of God or something of that nature. There's a lot of variety in those reports. That's one of the things that he notices is they're not all anything alike, but there's a lot of variety. And, and I don't know what to make of them. He didn't really know either. And, and I don't know. Uh, whether they reveal anything real or if they are simply the hallucinations of critically ill people. But what I do know is that none of them report seeing what John saw. None of them report seeing what John saw on that day when he was invited to come up here and saw a door opened in heaven and look through that door and saw one of the most magnificent scenes that anyone could ever see. John wasn't dead, and he wasn't near death, but he was in the Spirit. He was fully caught up by God's Spirit so that he could see spiritual realities, and he could see them clearly, and he could relate them to us in a way that we can grasp and understand and even marvel at. And what John saw was amazing. And it was awe-inspiring. The first thing that he saw, he says, was a throne. He saw a throne with one seated on it. Now, you can read that description of that throne carefully, and I think you'll see that it's quite obviously the throne of God. I'm not going to take time to demonstrate that because I think it's obvious enough. He sees the throne of God. But notice what he mentions first. You would think that having a vision that included God, he would say, I saw God seated on his throne. But he doesn't. He said, I saw a throne and one who was seated on it. Now, if you went into a room and you saw someone sitting on a sofa and you came out and someone asked you, what did you see in there? You wouldn't say, I saw a sofa and someone who was seated on it, would you? <clears throat> you wouldn't say that unless there was a purpose in calling attention to the sofa. Well, the same thing is true here with this throne. There is a purpose in calling attention to the throne. Well, what is that purpose? Remember that John is writing the book of Revelation for persecuted believers in Christ. They are suffering for their faith, 
uh, under the persecution by Jews and also by the Roman Empire. And in chapters 2 and 3, you have messages to each of these seven churches. On the two chapters leading up to 4, you have messages to each of these seven churches. And what the messages reveal is that these churches were struggling. They were struggling to be faithful. They were struggling to be pure. They were struggling to be loving. They were struggling to be all that God had called them to be. And they needed help because their circumstances were so very different. And one of the questions that these people had to have been asking, and John doesn't say it this way, but something they had to have been asking is, who's in charge of the world? Who's running things here? If God is the Lord of the universe and we are following that God, why is it that we are suffering? Who is in charge? The Romans around us keep telling us that Caesar is Lord and keeps, Caesar keeps demanding that we confess him as Lord. Who really is the Lord? And chapter 4 answers that question. Because God, John sees the throne of God and the one seated on it. There is no question from this vision that it is God who is in charge. It is God who is ruling the universe. It is God who is Lord of all creation. It is God to whom absolute devotion and honor is due. Chapter 4 makes that so clear. Then in chapter 5, the figure of the Lamb emerges. For the first of 29 times, by the way, in the book of Revelation... We read about the Lamb. See, God has a scroll in his hand, we find out in chapter 5. And this scroll is written on the front and it's on, on the back, but it's sealed with seven seals. And so it can't be opened and nobody can, can read it. And someone asks, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth was found worthy to do that. Not, not a single person was worthy to do that and John says I wept much because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or break its seals and then he heard a voice and the voice said don't weep the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and he is worthy to open the scroll John turned to see that lion and what did he see he saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He saw a slaughtered lamb. He saw a sacrificed lamb. He saw a, a lamb who conquered, not by warfare and bloodshed, but he saw a lamb who conquered by giving his own life for the sins of the world. And because of that, this lamb is, is able to take the scroll and to open its seals. And when the lamb does that, when he takes the scroll from God's right hand and opens the seals, all heaven breaks loose in a song of praise and celebration. Now, what I want us to see this morning is what's going on all the while that all of this is taking place. Because what's going on, what permeates these two chapters is worship. There is worship going on continually throughout this whole scene. This is a scene 
of worship. This is a scene about worship. In chapter 4, in verse 4, John says, Around the throne of God, he saw 24 other thrones with 24 elders seated on them, which I, I take to be the heavenly counterparts of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles representing the church. So they represent the people of God. And they've got on white robes and they've got gold crowns on their heads. What an impressive sight to see the throne of God. And it looks like all of these, uh, the brilliance of all of these precious gems. And then around it, 24 thrones and seated on them, the elders with their white robes and their golden crowns. What a beautiful sight that must have been. But that's not the whole picture. John says, then I looked and I saw between between the elders and the, and the throne, he sees four living creatures. I used to try to diagram those creatures or draw them for my students when I was teaching at VCU, and I gave up. I'm not that good an artist. But look at the description of them. They have four different kinds of faces, one like a lion, one like an ox, one like a man, one like an eagle. And they've each got six wings, and they're covered with eyes all over them. And they never cease to cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what I want you to notice about the living creatures is their function. The only thing they are ever said to do is to cry out, Holy, holy, holy in worship. And then when they give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, the 24 elders fall down before the throne and they cast their crowns before the throne and then they sing, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You see, these four living creatures are worship leaders. That's what they do. That's what their function is. Day and night, John says, they never cease to do this. They never cease to sing. There is worship going on in heaven all the time. There is worship going on in heaven throughout chapter 4 as it's being led by these four living creatures. And then when you move into chapter 5, the same thing is true. Chapter 5 and verse 8, when the Lamb takes the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down in worship. And notice now they sing a new song. They sing a new song. What's new about that song? Compare the song in chapter 5 with the song of the living creatures in chapter 4, and you'll see why it's new. Because now it is not only in praise of God the Creator, it's also in praise of the Lamb. The Lamb is praised with exactly the same terminology as the Creator of the universe who sits on the throne. And he occupies the throne with God, the creator. That's what's new about that song. It includes the worship of the lamb. And then in chapter 5, verses 11 to 13, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea join in praise and worship to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the last verse of chapter 5, and the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I don't know how John could breathe when he saw that scene. 
I don't know how he could, I don't know how he could even think if it had not been for the Spirit of God sustaining him, I'm sure he couldn't have. Seeing God, seeing the Lamb, seeing the heavenly hosts, all bowing in worship to God and to the Lamb. Now, the reason why I think this is significant for you and for me is because it helps us understand what worship is. And it helps us understand why worship is important for us. Traditionally in the church, we've talked about worship a lot. But we've mostly talked about what we call the acts of worship. We've talked about the constituent parts that make up worship. We've talked especially about how they ought to be done in order to be done properly and how so often they're not done properly by other folks and, and we want to do them the right way and so this is how we do them. And so we've, we've talked about that and we've talked about that and we've talked about that. But folks, worship is more than the sum of its parts. Worship is not just a collection of the acts that make it up. It's good to talk about those things. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about them. We should. We should talk about what we do specifically in worship, and we should talk about how we do it. But we need to talk and think more about why we worship and about what worship really is. What are we doing when we worship? And here's where Revelation 4 and 5 comes in, because it lets us see that worship is simply ascribing to God and describing to Jesus the glory that is due to them. That's what it is. It is ascribing to them the glory and the honor that is due to them because of who they are and of what they have done. God the Father as the creator of the world. God the Son as the one who died to give us eternal life. And notice what they say in the Psalms. Worthy are you. Worthy. They are worth it. God deserves every bit of worship that we can offer up to him. And like the elders in heaven, when we worship God, we cast our crowns before the throne too. Whatever it is that we have to offer, whatever it is that God has given us to use in his service, Whatever it is that we have that we can sacrifice for him, whatever it is that we have that we can use to serve him, we, we lay it before him if we're really worshiping. We're not just going through a set of acts, but we're acknowledging the greatness and the worthiness of God and of Jesus, and we are offering ourselves fully in their service, holding nothing back. You see, the elders don't have anything Anything to offer except those crowns. And they got those where? From God. And so they just cast those crowns before the throne. That's what happens when we acknowledge God and when we offer the worship that we should. We're worshiping God, worshiping his son. And by the way, notice the focus of worship is on the throne. It's not on the people doing the worshiping. We've missed that so badly. It's just sad. 
You know, about 20 or 25 years ago, we began to hear about all these what are called worship wars in the church. We think, well, that's a strong term, but it wasn't too strong. Because you had churches at, at each other's throats and people, churches actually splitting over the worship wars about, you know, well, I like this and I like that and I prefer new songs and I prefer old songs and, and I prefer uh, this and I prefer something else. And we've had churches thinking, well, we just need to change everything up and that's going to appeal to more people if we change everything up. I don't know where that idea comes from because you can find that those things being done out there in the world and those churches aren't in any better shape than anybody else. But we've had those worship wars. And you know what the problem is in all that? The problem in all of that is not so much the specifics of what is or is not done or how it is or is not being done. The problem in all that is we are focusing on ourselves and what we like and what we want and what we don't like and what we don't want. And what's the gold standard for a worship service? I didn't get anything out of it. I didn't get anything out of it. Can you imagine... Can you imagine if someone were there with a microphone and walked up to one of those 24 elders and said, tell me about worship today? And he'd say, I, you know, I didn't get a lot out of it. I've heard that song over and over. We sing that 24-7. Why don't we sing something else? It's not about what you and I get out of it. If we worship God, we'll get plenty out of it. If our hearts are in the right place. But it's not about that. It's about what we're putting into it and what we're offering up to God. It's about bringing a sacrifice of praise and laying it before the throne and focusing on God and on God alone. And folks, when we do that, when we do that, the other stuff just fades away by comparison. It just fades away. What we're seeing in Revelation 4 and 5 is that our worship what we're doing here this morning, our worship is simply a reflection of what goes on in heaven all the time. We're just reflecting. We're just bouncing back as imperfectly as we do the perfect worship that takes place in heaven all the time. When those living creatures and those elders and every creature on earth and under the heaven acknowledge the greatness and the goodness of God our Father and the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ, we're joining in with them. You know, someone might ask you this afternoon, how many were at worship today? Millions. More than we can count. We don't really know. We're told there were myriads and myriads. We don't know. We're just reflecting what's going on in heaven. And that's really all that matters. But why is it so important that we grasp that? It's important because we need to know that we owe worship to God. We owe it to him. Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power. You're worthy of that. You're worthy of that. It's the least that we can do. And you know, it's also the most that we can do. That's the greatest, best thing we can do is offer our worship um, to God. 
You know, we act sometimes as though worship is just sort of out there on the periphery of life and that if everything else is in place and, and you know, we, we're not too tied up uh, with this or with that or the other, that somehow we'll work worship in. That's not even worship. If that's how you look at it, that's not even worship. Worship is something that we owe to God. It is our most fundamental response to God. It is how we relate to him. The famous theologian Karl Barth once wrote that Christian worship is the most momentous, the most urgent, the most glorious action that can take place in human life. And if Revelation 4 and 5 is true, he's right. It is the most momentous, the most urgent, the most glorious thing that takes place in human life. There is nothing, nothing more important. And to not worship, to not worship is to refuse to acknowledge his greatness and his rule over our lives. And what a serious matter that is. Look further in Revelation in chapter 16 and verse 9. When those who have given allegiance to the beast and they refuse to honor God and they experience God's judgment, John says they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, but they did not repent or give him glory. They would not worship him. Because when you acknowledge God, you worship him. You know, there's a lot of folks out there today You say, you believe in God? Oh, yeah, I believe in God. When do you worship? Oh, I don't believe. I don't worship God. I don't think you have to worship God. I just, but I acknowledge God. No, you don't acknowledge him. If you do not worship him, you do not acknowledge him. If you do not bow before him, if you do not acknowledge his greatness and his power and his glory, and that he is worthy and that you owe him your worship, then you might as well not believe in him at all. You might as well not believe in him at all. In Romans chapter 1, verse 25, Paul said that the Gentiles had exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever we got folks running around all over the place worshiping themselves worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars and, and their stuff instead of worshiping the creator who's blessed forever but here's another reason it's important it's because we become we become like what we worship. And don't miss this because we don't think about it as much as we should. We become like that which we worship. Did you know even before Jesus came, a lot of the pagans in the Roman Empire had given up worshiping the traditional gods of Rome. They were sick of them. You know why? Those gods were too much like their next door neighbors. Those gods were drunkards. And they were sexually immoral. And they were greedy for power. And they were always fighting with one another. And the people finally began to look around and said, why do you worship somebody who's like us? They're just magnified images of us. And so a lot of them began going to the Jewish synagogue where they could worship one true God. And that's where Paul would find them in the book of Acts. He'd go into the synagogue and he'd preach to the, to the Gentiles and the Jews who were there. The Gentiles were there because they were looking for that one true God. And they found him in the synagogue, and then they found out about his son through the preaching of Paul. 
But why were the people like that? Why were they were the way they were? Because their gods were like that. It was a vicious cycle. They conceived of the gods to be like them, and then they became more like the gods that they worshipped. If you worship a god who's a drunkard, how are you going to be compelled to be anything different? If you worship a god who's greedy for power, how are you going to be compelled to do anything different? What's going to be your motivation? There isn't any. And so it just got worse and worse and worse. Until in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And, and his son came and showed who God really is. And people knew how to worship him. You see, when we worship the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ, we absorb, we absorb something of his nature into ourselves. We are changed by worship. We absorb something of his mercy and his grace. We absorb something of his holiness. We absorb something of his faithfulness. We are better people. Because we worship. And I don't mean better than other people. We are just better people because we worship God. Worship makes us better because worship makes us become more like the God that we worship. Lactantius was a church leader in the, in the late 3rd and early 4th centuries. And he wrote this. In order to placate a deity whom you worship, one must do those things which please and delight the deity. So it comes about that a God shapes the life of the worshiper according to the quality of its own divine nature because the most religious form of worship is imitation. The most religious form of worship is imitation. So if you get the wrong God, you're going to become the wrong kind of person. If you give yourself in worship to the one true God, you will become what God wants you to be. The more you worship God, the more you will be like him, more holy, more righteous, more merciful. I don't know about all those people and their near-death experiences that Dr. Grayson wrote about. I don't know about their bright lights and their warm feelings and their visions of deceased relatives. But I do know what John saw. And I know that when you and I worship, we are reflecting what is going on at this very moment in heaven itself. And any time we're at worship, we're reflecting what is going on in heaven. But remember that worshiping God means acknowledging his son and what he's done for you. You can't have Revelation 4 and not have Revelation 5. You've got a lot of folks who say, oh, I, okay, I acknowledge God, but I, you know, I don't know about Jesus. You cannot have Revelation 4 without Revelation 5. You cannot have the one who sits on the throne who created the universe without his son who shares that throne with him. They are both worthy. So if you have not yet begun to follow the son, you are not able to worship in the sense of Revelation 4 and 5 in the way that God wants you to worship. So we urge you, we plead with you to follow him today so that your life will be one of worship 
giving honor and glory and praise to God the Father and to God the Son who died on the cross for you. If you're ready to do that, come now and tell us. Let's stand and sing. He left the cross, Christ for me.